0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
0: Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The, elephant in the room.com.au
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is generally nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: Are private certifiers really to blame for the poor quality of our apartment buildings? We've been discussing build quality on this podcast for some time now, even before the Opal Tower fiasco, and now we're becoming aware of more buildings with major structural defects and not all of these are brand new, mascot towers being a case in point, as it was 12 years old when it was evacuated. Now, back in the old days, local councils certified buildings. And why did councils lose the power? What is the difference between the way things used to be done and how they are now done? In this episode, we'll get the inside scoop from Kerry Hunt, manager of the building certification team at the Inner West Council in Sydney. Kerry has over 40 years' experience in building surveying in local government, both here and in the UK, and she's known as a straightforward practical professional, Pretty pragmatic, and she's worked across a wide array of building jobs from complex, multi-residential, industrial, commercial jobs and fire upgrades to all varieties of residential jobs, just your little home on its own little block of land. She's also adept at navigating the complexity of planning, building and certification legislation, which is very complex. Now, over the years, Kerry has represented local government building certifiers on many technical advisory committees, especially during the early changes to legislation which saw the introduction of private certification 20 years ago and the outcomes since then in the building industry. Today, this is exactly what we want to learn more about. Thank you for joining us, Kerry.
1: Thank you. Hi, Kerry. How are you going? I'm very good. Thank you for being here and giving us your valuable time. Before we get into the, uh, the more you know complex parts, I mean, for our listeners, what does actually certifiers really do and how do they kind of fit into the whole building process? So I think there's a lot of bit
2: of misunderstanding there. Let's go back a little bit further to what I was originally, uh, when I originally trained, I was a health and building inspector, Mm -hmm. because I think the terminology about the role has changed over the years. Mm. So when you think about health and building inspector, it sort of implies that you're going to go and inspect something. You're going Mm -hmm. to go and look at it. You're going to have an overview of what actually happens, Mm -hmm. either in a food shop or on a building site. Quite and a think,
1: scary word compared to certifier, right? Inspector's
2: whoa. like, ooh. ooh. And, it, and, you know, we were talking about if you went onto site and they went, oh, the building inspector is here or the health inspector in a restaurant, mm. people actually really sort of went, oh, my God, where, what, what have I done wrong or what are the problems here that mm. I may have not may have missed that this inspector is going to look at? So that's the big thing, I think, first is the change of name. So it went from inspector to surveyor to now certifier.
1: And is the um, inspector, are they, when the certifier comes, is it like the certifier's coming on Tuesday at nine o'clock, let's get the place ready? Or is it random the certifier's here just to kind of rock up and check if everything's okay?
2: There's no random inspections. You have to carry out mandatory inspections. And so part of that is someone will ring you and say, I'm ready for this particular type of inspection. So the inspections are actually set out by legislation. There's two types of it, inspections for class 1A buildings, which is your normal dwellings, of which there's up to five mandatory infec- inspections, or for class 2 to 9 buildings, which are your multi-residential, your shops, your commercial buildings and all the rest of it. And in those there are, there are there is a regime of mandatory inspections, but for those, for instance, in a class 2 building, you only have to inspect 10% of the waterproofing. So If you've got 100 units in a development, you only have to inspect 10 of those ten of those waterproofing. So is that random? No, and again, it would be the developer or the builder ringing and saying, I'm ready for this inspection. So they uh, can get it ready.
0: So, yeah, okay, so they would say 10% is these two apartments here. Yep. Just look at them. Yep,
2: let's walk around here. You can look at that one, that one, and that one. Right, okay. Can't see any issues with that. Oh, absolutely not because... <laughs> 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 what but, you um, see is a completed product? You don't see the yeah. waterproofing going down. You don't necessarily even see that the product that they've used, the number of coats, various mm. other bits. And so mm. you see a completed waterproofed area in a bathroom or what have you. So, so in yeah, the olden
1: days, was it like that though? Was the old, it, yeah. like the olden
0: days. I love yeah. the olden
2: days. <laughs> Before <laughs> I was born. Been around 40 years, it was the olden it. days. <laughs> 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 um was, God, I just realised <laughs> it was before you were born, Chris. Anyway, do you go on? <laughs> do go on. So, when councils had the whole of the the building approval and inspection regime, mm. it was custom and practice. So, you would talk to the builder at the beginning of the job, and they'd say, "I'll come and have a look at your footings. I'll look at your frame. I'll look at your waterproofing." Though a lot of those those were were uh, con- uh, sorry copper trays and similar things to that. So products have changed over the years. Oh yeah. Mm. And I'll come and look at it before the people move in. But what happened was was that when it went to certification, if it wasn't in the legislation, there was no obligation for the private certifier for instance to actually carry out those inspections. Mm. So the legislators changed the legislation to make mandatory or critical stage inspections part of an inspection regime. Mm. They also had to change that before you issued a an approval, you had to do a pre commencement inspection. Because uh-huh. what they were finding was, that people were issuing approvals from the from their offices, or uh-huh. the back of their garages, or wherever they were working, so that it meant that no one was actually looking at the site uh-huh. before they actually issued something. Uh-huh. So to actually put into legislation, you must go out and site and have a look at it before you approve something. Uh-huh was something that was showed that there was issues in the industry.
1: So, you know, we've got lots of building issues at the moment, but is there lots of little things that we need to fix or is it one big issue that will fix, you know, 80% of the problems?
2: I think it's really complex because part of the problem is is that um, for my job as a, as, as a council certifier, I have a civil and a moral responsibility, mm-hmm. ci- sorry, a civic and a moral responsibility to service whoever walks through the door. Mm-hmm. My job is to protect the community and to look after anyone who walks in the door from a multi-million dollar developer to Mrs. Keforps from down the road. Mrs. Kefurps. Mrs. Keforps, because <laughs> that's my job. Yep. That's what I'm employed as. I'm a public servant. I'm a public official. So therefore my dedication is to make sure that those people get the mm. proper service yep. that they do. So it is a, it's quite complex and mm. I don't think there's a real uh, appetite from the government through all of these inquiries that are going on To change that because they don't want to wind back what has happened for the last 20 years. Okay, so
0: what did happen? Because obviously 20 years ago things changed. Do you have a a view on why they changed and what was that change? Okay,
2: so if you go back and look at building regulations, Mm. for instance, the Building Code of Australia was brought in in 1996. Prior to that, New South Wales had an ordinance that was attached to the Local Government Act called Ordinance 70. It was a prescriptive piece of legislation that had been developed over years and years and years, but it was prescriptive. So it said if you had to be 900, you had to be 900. The Building Code of Australia came in 1996, it was for the whole of Australia, and it became a performance-based document. So if you met an objective about something, about ensuring that the building was safe to live in, you could deal with that through a couple of measures. They still had prescriptive deemed to satisfy requirements but you also could try out new things as long as it was comparable to deemed to satisfy. Right. So in 1998, the New South Wales government took all of the responsibilities out of the Local Government Act for building approvals, for instance, and building inspections and put them in the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act. So the Act changed in 1998 Mm -hmm. and what that allowed for was for private certifiers to come into the market to allow them to issue construction certificates and complying development certificates and carry out inspections. Prior before to that, that, it
1: was the government?
2: It was always councils. The council, I mean, yeah. Always councils. Councils had done it for 120 years before that. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the flavour at that particular time was about decreasing the amount of uh, works that mandatory authorities had and put it out into the open market, so that there were supposed to be more efficiencies, mm. supposed to be faster, quicker, easier, and the fact that the market would find its level as to how that would happen.
1: There's been quite a lot of different industries, right? When you, yeah, a privatisation of certain things, you know, is meant to create those things. But end of the day, you're in a capitalist society where people are running businesses, and is that kind of where you think that the problem is? Like a lot of people, the certifiers are. I just want to start writing, get more customers and they start getting busier and things, the standards start falling. Is that, do you think what's happened? Well, I think too,
2: it's, it's, it's an imperative in business. You get return business. So you're not, as a, as a man, as someone who's <laughs> a regulator or an enforcer, you're not going to say to your client, hey mate, that's no good. Pull it down. Hmm. Give you another example. So about the same time, they also got rid of the builder's licensing board who were the insurers for everybody and they put it out to the open market. And we've seen what's happened with insurance over time, whether it's home warranty insurance, Mm. public liability insurance, all the rest of it. I think the insurance companies last year got in something like $68 million worth of money in, but they paid out about $204 million. So there's always going to be a problem where um, capitalism is not going to make money, so they're going Mm. to want to pull out of the market. Mm. So we had a time there when... You couldn't get home warranty insurance. Builders could not get home warranty yeah, insurance. It was back insurance. in two thousand and one,
0: wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So
2: they had to. The government had to come in and prop it up, and they've had to do it again purely because the market does not tolerate very much if they got to, if they're not if they've got to pay out more than they're getting in.
0: But then you've got to think about why are they're paying out more.
2: Well, there's more bu- building defects. Yeah. And the evidence <laughs> has come through that there is that the building quality has certainly deteriorated. 2002, there was a Campbell report into the quality of buildings. Mm. So was, from
1: 98 to 2002, we already started to get, see these issues. There was a report showing it. Yep. But now 17 years later, we're still yep. talking about it.
2: We said the system would fall over in 10 years and it did. And then we said, but the real cracks, and i excuse the pun, <laughs> have really occurred now where we have major I think trillions of dollars they're talking about having to, for repairs in, in multi-residential buildings, combustible cladding. It was, in mm. the, you know, this morning they were talking about that the possible bill for this will be up to a trillion dollars. So, you know. And
0: who's going to foot it?
2: The poor consumer. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we talk about consumers jump into something because they get anxious about not being in the market or what have you, but they don't do very much research or understand what they're actually spending. The risks. Their money, all the risks associated mm. with it. So
0: so back to back to 1998, legislation well, legislation changed on the back of the Australian Building Code. That was part of it, yeah. Because yep. I remember, you know, rats in the ranks and was it, you know, <laughs> there was actually an ABC, you know, mockumentary on that, wasn't yeah. there? Um, like our council in particular was was, yep. was renowned for taking bribes from developers. So clearly there's always been an issue even before then. Um, and also then that, that that perception of it took forever to get a DA through, yep. you know, and so then you'd see these these ranked count, councils ranked across the country, you know, who, mm. who took, yep. you know, more days than three months to approve a DA, et cetera, et cetera. So there clearly were problems originally, um, but it sounds to me a little like a lot of those problems about for the, the same reasons that we've still got problems, i.e., you know, and, and I'm a conscious capitalist, capitalist. I'm not a socialist, right? Um, but there are unconscious, no, unconscionable cap- capitalists out there, clearly. And and when there's a buck to be made, obviously, there's there's dollars to be, you know, bribed and all hmm. sorts of stuff, right? So it, it sounds like similar underlying problem, really, is just well, manifesting it's, differently.
2: It's interesting because there's an inquiry at the moment and one of the allegations that was made by the Property Council was that the whole system was falling apart because of corruption. There's no evidence, so there's one evidence in ICAC where a building surveyor took the money.
0: Right.
2: Mm. So the fact is is that you've got to separate the political masters away from the people who are doing the nuts and bolts of yeah. things. And part of the problem with, and that's why they've now got planning panels They've got independent people that sit instead of councillors to make decisions on development approvals. They have planning panels both at a state and a regional level mm-hmm. as well as mm-hmm. a local level to take it out from the influence, if you like, of 12 honest men and women sitting around a table playing, yeah. you know, scoring political points against everybody else, which is yeah. what really Rats in the Ranks was, was all <laughs> about getting someone elected as mayor. Yeah. So... As council officers, and I've been in the industry for 40 years, and I can say probably unequivocally it doesn't happen. Mm. It doesn't happen as much as the perception is that it does. Yeah. Mm.
0: And likewise, back to this, this I feel what looks to me a bit like the certifier, or private certifiers are being scapegoated for what's going on now as if it's their fault or, you know what I mean? So, I mean, yeah. you did talk about there's that, that separation or that issue with who appoints a certifier, and that's that's pretty obvious, I would think, you've got to separate that out. But, you know, how fair is that, I guess, to, to say, oh, well, it's because of the certifiers?
2: Well, I think the certifiers have been dumped with it because often they're the only person that has insurance on the job. Mm. So it's like everything else. Right. Look at Opal Tower. Who are they yeah. going for? They're going for the Olympic Authority because they own some of the the, the places in yeah. there. So it's the people who have the insurance. And part of that is because of the regulations in the Building Professionals Board Act, which says you cannot function as a certifier unless you have a certain amount of money of uh, public liability and professional liability insurance. The builder, the, the tradesman, the subcontractor, the developer doesn't have the insurance. Wow. Home warranty insurance isn't required on any building over four storeys. Yep. Uh, so yeah. So that's, that's, that uh, that's very convenient. It's, Thanks very much. Yeah. Can the
1: certifiers get insurance now then? Because, I mean, if you're a certifier now, you've only got to look at 10% of the waterproofing as mm-hmm. an example and you start getting all these issues where you haven't looked at 90% of the things and now that building's got problems and then they come to sue you.
2: Well, how, can, how can you get insurance? There's a massive risk about it, and there was a, a, a problem too because one of the bits in the regulation says you can't have any conditions on your insurance.
3: Mm.
2: But with the combustible cladding issue, which is another big thing that we could talk about, mm. the insurance companies were going, I'll insure you as long as you have nothing to do with combustible right. cladding. So then the government had to step in again and change regulations to allow certifiers to hold insurance with a condition on the yeah. insurance, insurance. There's more and more Band-Aids. Oh, and this is what it is. It's a cobble-on, cobble-on, cobble-on. So if you really, like the Lambert report when it came out said you have to do wholesale regulation and act changes. You can't just keep on putting little bits into the Environmental Planning Assessment Act and the regulations to make it better. Mm. You You have to actually turn it all back again, look at it afresh, because it's changed so much. It's not working, clearly. It's not working.
0: You mentioned the Campbell report. That was mm-hmm. four years after yep. this changes, um, and now the Lambert Report. Yep. So there's obviously a number of reports <laughs> that have been written by the sounds yep. of it. Um, can we go back to, firstly, can we go back to the Campbell Report? What was in that? What did that say? It know, made a
2: whole lot of recommendations about, it was about the quality of construction, and some of it was about um, an inspection regime. There was changes to regulation that came out of it. Some of it was about a level playing field between certifiers, private certifiers, and council certifiers because it's, it's a very, and I'm going to use the word, it's, it's, it's not a very mature industry in the sense that it is lit, literally less than 20 years old. Yeah. So there's a split between there. It was a, quite an antagonistic split as well. So you would be working next to someone one day and they're going, I'm going to go out and do private certification. All right. And, and you'd say, well, I'm going to stay in council because that's where I – I've always sat and that's where I want to sit. So it was people who weren't necessarily um, the best of the industry that were Mm. going out, but there were certainly people that had uh, a business mind and wanted to make make a lot of money. And they've made a lot of money. A lot of them have made a lot of money. So it's an ideological split. Yeah, I think there's a philosophical and ideological Mm. split as well. And there's some very, very good certifiers, don't get me Mm. wrong. And I think that one of the pieces of evidence that I gave was that there's some very good certifiers, there's some mediocre certifiers, there's some really poor certifiers, mm. like industry. any industry. Mm. So you've got to weed out the ones that are causing the problem for everybody else. Yep. The responsibility at that time was with uh, the institutes and then it got, went to the Department of Planning then it went to the Building Professionals Board. So there's this whole... 20-year history of trying to fix the problems in the system without Mm. looking at the fundamental problem in the system, which is about a conflict of interest.
1: So we've had all these reports and they keep getting reports. There'll be more reports coming Mm. out this year. (laughs) Um, You know, we love reports. But why doesn't the government look take action on these reports? Like really they don't want to um, because they don't want to bring more regulation. But something's got to be done, but
2: why don't they want to? I don't think they have an appetite for it. So they, again, play around the edges. We've just got a new building commissioner appointed. He gave evidence at the inquiry recently and what he said was, I'm going to do a light touch on this. Mm. Oh. He says he doesn't need additional resources. So he's talking about using existing staff within the Department of Fair Trading to assist him in his process. He's appointed Bronwyn Weir, who is one of the uh, from the SheGol Weir report, to assist him for initially 10 days to assist with making sense of all of this sort of stuff. So I don't have a lot of confidence that that will happen. In Victoria, they have a building commission there that I think when it was set up had a a budget of $5.5 million, which was a lot of money back in 1987, and a staff of 55. So you get better quality buildings in some respects in Victoria and Queensland because you have a Victorian building commission Mm. and you have a better commission there. So you have this overall view over the whole of the industry – not just small parts of it,
0: and there is some data on that too. Because we want to interview a Dr. Nicole Johnson from Deakin University, um, who recently, in fact, she she was. I first came across her on Amanda Farmer's podcast, um, Your Strada Property, and uh, Amanda interviewed her about this report that coincidentally came out two days before the Mascot Towers. Mm. Um, evacuations. So she's been very busy mm. in media since then because of that. Obviously, there's a lot of work goes into putting together the research behind mm. this report. But that, and I don't have the exact numbers, but something like 91% of, of buildings that was included in the report, so it's not even an exhaustive, um, in New South Wales had at least one defect across numerous
2: multi-residential yep. buildings. Yep. Yes. Yep.
0: In Queensland, it was something like 71%. In Victoria, it was something like 74%. So there's a 20 percentage points difference that I think reflects very clearly the difference between
2: legislation or process in those states. I think, I think we were discussing before how quickly buildings go up. Mm. So concrete doesn't actually achieve full strength until 28 days. So if you're pouring a slab, Mm. then you'd leave the scaffolding in, you'd leave everything in there for at least 28 days, you'd cure it properly, you'd do all the rest of it before you started loading that slab or before you started stripping off the scaffolding. But what happens now, and you see it because the scaffolding's Mm. dedicated on another site, on another site, and on another site, so you talk to builders now doing jobs that would have taken them 12, 18 months. Off the site in six, wanting being told to be off the site between uh, six to nine months because of either they've been bought off the plan, there's sunset clauses, mm. there's various various other issues, and so buildings are going up faster and faster and faster.
1: And, and I so don't on think the uh, like the level. So you do the slab 28 days. Yep. But if you're going level one, do you need another 28 days?
2: You should. You should literally let the the buildings settle and yep. the, and the materials within it. They, they use lots of fast wall systems now. Mm. So there's a couple of proprietary products around that are like a formwork. So they're a formwork which they core fill with concrete. They put uh, steel in them and all the rest of it. Yep. So that means you don't need a concrete block layer on the site. So mm. it it also dumps down a little bit in building. You don't have as many uh, master brick layers or concrete block layers and all of those yep. other sorts of people you have Fast wall systems, you have lightweight construction. Yep. You have a whole lot of stuff that goes in faster and quicker mm. um, and with less supervision on, on, on some of them as well. That's the So
1: yeah. to get speed, you have to sometimes reduce quality, right? And so I guess if you're doing that, you know, and you're constantly looking for efficiency and faster, at some point the compounding of quality is just starting to add up to a lot of something's you know, much bra- smaller properties. Something's
2: going to break down. They also talk about the design and build process. Yeah. Mm. So you you're building as you're designing it. So you'll get a you'll get a concept design of something and then each of the experts will come in and give you more and more and more detailed drawings. Mm. So that's it's been pointed out that that is a problem. Uh there's also if you've contracted to someone and they may subcontract to someone else, mm. you'll look for cost savings in that. There's yep. a big issue about what uh, materials have been also imported into Australia. There was a big issue about uh, electrical conduits and electrical covering on uh, wiring that came in from from China mm-hmm. that was substituted in. So there is hundreds of thousands of kilometres of electrical wiring in houses everywhere else where the casing breaks down much, much quicker. had a little stamp on it that said it was Australian standard. But mm. if you look at it, it had an, another little sort of emblem on it. If yeah. you knew what you were looking for, it was one. But. By all appearance purposes, it looked like it was uh, proper electrical cabling. So the
1: subcontracting thing I think is interesting. So, you know, a lot of people think you're employing one builder and one builder has built the whole development. So, you know, I bought a development by X, but did they always build the building?
2: Not always because they they will subcontract who will then sometimes subcontract to someone else. So um, a situation where... Uh, A Western Australian developer had bought a property. He had contracted to a demolisher to demolish what was a 1980s house next to an 1880s terrace. By the time someone got on the site, it had been subcontracted out about three or four times. Mm. So instead of a very reputable building company demolishing it, it was two blokes that turned up on site with a couple of sledgehammers Mm -hmm. and had no idea what they were doing. You go back to the developer and say, who's on your site? I have no idea. I contracted to this person, so he's paid that person, but then as it goes down the line, someone else is making money out of the subcontract, out of the subcontract. So it's a real risk in the situation. Who is on your site? Who is building? Are they licensed? Do they have the education? Yeah. Do they have the skills? Mm. Do they have all of those other sorts of things to make sure that you're going to get a good build product at the end that people are going to live in and that's going to be safe?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you.
0: The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help. All of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the
1: decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Just by you sharing our episodes, you're really helping us.
0: Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us.
1: Now, obviously, we're on this podcast. I mean, we're kind of preaching to the convert. I think a lot of our listeners don't go and buy these, you know, p- new properties, and you know they've understand the issues and things like that. Um, but you know, it's a very big issue in society. But a lot of people say, if you go buying off the plan, just pick a good builder. But you know, the problem with subcontracting is, are they are they really building it? Are they got other projects? Are they, you know, you can't just. I feel like you just can't trust even the builder. It, it's just. Yeah. It's just hard to know if you're safe there either.
2: You probably know more your um where your porks coming from mm. because it, you can go back <laughs> to source of mm. where it came from yeah. what farm if you buy it from particular places. Yeah. But if you said who was my electrician on the site or who was my data cabler or who was my plumber or the fire in, fire installer what? you would get a certificate at the end but who it's a piece of paper. Mm. So that's the real problem that a lot of the stuff they're doing around the edges is all about documentation, mm. but it's actually physically on the site. What's going on on the site? Who's actually doing mm. the physical work and what are they using? that makes all the difference and what are they using? And who's who's supervising them?
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm being a bit ignorant here because um, I kind of over the last few months have been thought, you know, well, there's going to be this two-tier system. Anything that's been built from maybe 98, 2002, which you were talking about there, to say two thousand and twenty. Is going to be stuff that you just don't want to go anywhere mm. near. Mm. But in 2022, you know, there's going to be this new legislation. I was kind of being a bit hopeful. There's going to be better certification, et cetera. And there's going to be these new options that, you know, will be. A, we're going to start building good products. But do you believe that, you know, in five years' time we're going to do that or is it just going to be light touches around the edges and we're going to still have the same problems in 10, 15 years' time?
2: I think there's going to be a lot of light touches around the edges. They don't want to introduce more re- regulation. They don't want to increase more red tape because that increased costs. Mm. Um, so I, I don't hold out much hope or have much confidence wow. that it, things will change to the point so drastically that we'll go back to the old days of here's a three-storey walk-up supervised by a clerk of works on the site, by a reputable builder who was really proud of what they did. Mm. i think that i think those days have gone um there are good builders around obviously there's some good companies around that do stuff but, but like if you look at commercial builders you have one client mm. the problem with this is you have a developer and a builder yep. that's building for a number of owners who haven't even come together as an owners corporation So they're individuals who are not very well educated. They can't get on site during the Mm. build because they're not allowed to. Mm. They've built off the plan. They've panicked to get in there. And there's no one person that they're going to say that person's going to use that premises. Yeah. And that's where I think there's a big problem. You build a shopping centre. You know you're building a shopping centre for a particular developer or a particular company. Mm. They're going to make sure there's checks and balances in the whole system. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it isn't, they'll sue the sue the end off the off the builder who's yep. allowed the water to come in and or the fire service person or what have you. So I think that's the real drama is that yeah. you've got a multitude of end users who are no, not even on the site. They're not looking at it. They're they've not no supervising. And they're not educated enough to go, I've got the risk means. that money. All got they've the got the means. means. Yeah. They
1: can't, they've, you know, like, you know, we're doing a trademark sort of thing at the moment where, you know, the legal costs are quite expensive. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, the reality is mm. like it's expensive to get lawyers involved. Yeah. It's expensive to, and you don't really want to and things like that. So, yeah. I mean, if we move it from a different type of new buildings, on the older buildings, you've done lots of certification over mm. 40 years. What are some of the issues though that, you know, our listeners, if they're going to buy an old apartment or an older house, that they really need to focus that things might not have been built well?
2: Um, every, every, you can look at generations of building, if you like. So it doesn't matter whether you buy something from the 1880s through to interwar ones. Every house has its, or every dwelling, let's go back to dwellings again, single Mm. single Mm. dwellings. Has an inherent defect. Yep. So if it's an 1880s building, it's unlikely to have a damp roof course. It's likely to have rising damp. It might have had its, all its timber just built straight off the ground. So you might have termites. You might have damp problems. You won't have very good electrical or plumbing and all those other sorts of things unless it's been renovated. And it might have been renovated in the 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. so you're now in the, you know, you're now 60 or 70 years later. So those things deteriorate. So it doesn't matter what era of, of mm-hmm. dwelling you're looking at, they all have their own inherent things and you have to do your due diligence.
1: Why is actually damp a real problem though? Cuz like you know, I know listeners will probably think, "Oh, damp it's a problem," but really why is it such a big problem?
2: Well, Rising, you have rising or penetrating damp. So rising damp will cause problems because it attracts termites for a start. Mm -hmm. Termites love nice, dark, damp places. You have have, uh, timber that's not treated. So termites are a problem Mm -hmm. if you've got rising damp. You've got other rising dampers. Obviously, you create damp conditions within a a building, which isn't great for your health. You get mold growth. You get all those other sorts of bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. So damp is really important. And you've got unsightly walls because the all the, um, all the salt comes out. Yeah, or if you have a defective roof or a ceiling, if you've mm. got old plaster and lath ceilings, for instance, stains the ceilings, you lose the bond on it, mm. and again, mm. you get problems with berm getting into the roof surfaces. It's mm. unsightly. There's a whole lot of whole lot of defects that can actually make it unpleasant to live in a property. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And the
1: termites thing's interesting, right? Because you know. Most people think, you know, termites aren't really a problem out there, but, I mean, you've seen a lot why of them. <laughs> well, why
3: do you say that? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, you <laughs> have, have
1: you, like, it's a lot of things. If you haven't been exposed to something mm. or you haven't <sighs> seen it or you haven't gone through the experience, you're a little bit ignorant to these things. It's not really on the papers or anything like that. If you haven't, your parents haven't had that or et cetera. So,
0: but pretty much every single house, like in the Inner West where, where I operate, for instance, and, and the eastern suburbs and North Shore, pretty much every house except for new, recent builds, Has had termites at some point of its history. Mm. Pretty much every single building inspection will say at some point there is termite damage. So it's a really, really common. And in fact, I was living in was renting years ago. This you will know this, this development. It's in Annandale. And apparently they've had a massive amount of rectification works, but apparently there was a townhouse. I won't give the address for those poor people that do live there. But apparently, it was originally built for social housing, but then it got changed and was sold commercially. Uh, sold um, to the open market. We were living in it when it was only two years old, and it was really, really poorly constructed. They've spent so much on this years later. But anyway, I went to the bathroom one day. I looked in the door jam, and there was all this refuse coming out. And I went, "I didn't you know better. I would think that there's two mites in this joint." And this was upstairs in a two-story oh. townhouse, and um, sure enough, anyway, so. I went to the property manager and I said, oh, I think this place got termites. Turned out the place was riddled with them and riddled everywhere. I sprayed Mm. Bagon (laughs) into the door jam one day. They had no money in the strata to pay for to treat it. So they they came around, someone came around and squirted a couple of cans of something and they kept munching away. I sprayed Bagon into that um, door jam one day and I could hear them screaming in the walls from a squirt of bagel <laughs> that everywhere of You well, they couldn't
2: rec- sleep in the bedroom. Well, they reckon on a on a quiet summer's evening, if you're out on the peninsula or anywhere, you can literally hear the termites just just wow. m- and they use um, some <laughs> they use spaniel dogs to go into houses that are as specifically trained to hear mm. termites actually up. eating. And they're very clever little insects because mm. with, on a nice balmy summer's evening, just as the sun's setting, you will suddenly see lots of swarms of what looks like flying ants they're actually termites isn't it called termite night yes <laughs> and if you get them into your house mm. so suddenly you go oh there's a lot of term- oh, there's a lot of ants flying around my house mm. that's a really big trigger that says you've got termites somewhere in your property that you need to then get treated and how fast
1: do they actually eat a house though
2: Uh they take they can take quite a long time it depends on the timbers yeah. and it also depends they're very good at ensuring that the structural the structural outside of the timber that they're eating stays intact because they're subterranean, so they can't live in light. That's why the mudding, or they call it the mudding, the refuse that you talk Mm. about is the mudding, so that they build little tracks for themselves to run up and down. So when you put an ant cap on top of a pier, it has a little angle on it so that you can actually – it doesn't stop termites. It just makes them more obvious. Mm. So the 45-degree angle means that they build the mud up the side of the pier And then underneath, so therefore visual inspection is really important Mm -hmm. in subfloor areas.
0: And also the the
2: termite baiting
0: systems, I think that's hilarious. So they actually, you know. They attract
2: the termite to your house. (laughs) So (laughs) I can check it and go, you have termites. It's It's like,
0: mm. hello, hilarious. But the thing is that, um, you know, they're in trees, they're everywhere. And and I think a lot of people think they buy a brick house, that they're not subject to termites. However, that's more hidden. You know, weatherboard is going to be
2: more obvious Mm. straight away.
0: Um, but, yeah, they can do more damage in a brick, I reckon. But
2: there's lots of products around. The Australian Standard, for instance, and the Building Code of Australia is the same. It only applies to new builds. Mm. So that yeah. there's a struggle sometimes to say, here I've got a, a 1930s house. I'm building a rear-dwelling addition on it. The new rear-dwelling addition has to comply with the Building Code of Australia. The yeah. termite protection has to. Mm. But there's nothing in the Australian Standard that says, how do I protect the new bit? From the old bit. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a
0: really good so point. So
2: things like cord there's certain products that are around that, that have to be installed by proper installers and certified and all the rest mm-hmm. of it because the linking between the old and the new is really important that you don't allow the termites to travel through. Mm. So it's – it's Talking about renovating,
0: so when you're buying, there's lots of different certificates that, you know, we look for in a contract. For instance, we look, you know, for does it have a building certificate? Does it have mm-hmm. an occupation certificate? You know, can we see that they had a – did, was a DA even approved? Did they build what mm. was approved? There's a construction certificate, all those sorts of things. What sort of certificates should somebody look for in a contract of sale when they're buying a property that has actually been renovated or
2: newly built? It's really important to do your own due diligence. Mm. So looking at what approvals. Approvals are really important. You well, you buy a house that's got unauthorised works. It may not have been inspected. may have termite problems. You've got no insurance on it. There's various other bits and pieces. So... Mm certainly having the DA consent and the relevant certificates that go along with that, including the occupation certificate. You mentioned a building certificate. Now, it's really interesting that it used to be the certificate because it's a certificate of non-action by council Mm. and and it's relevant for seven years. It does go on beyond that. But it basically says that council accepts what's on the the site on that day of inspection. So Mm. it's looked back through all of the previous approvals and everything else. So it's a really strong certificate to have in your contract to make sure that someone else who's independent of the agent, the developer, the builder, the owner, has come out and gone, I used my skill to say that there's probably no problems with this house. The visual inspection, but you use your experience to actually do that. How often are they issued? Much, much, much less than they used to be. We used mm. to rec- when I
0: was selling, we used to recommend everybody got one. But now everyone we sold. gets an
2: occupation certificate instead. Yes, there's in a step, difference. Yeah, but they're two very different certificates, mm. using two different pieces of legislation. Right. The occupation certificate says the building, well, that part of the building is suitable for occupation. What, right. what does that actually mean? Mm. Oh, you got mean window stores. Doesn't well, it does because it comes off the DA. Right. So it does actually say that that part of it is legal. Yep.
1: But not the whole property. No. Whereas the, well, it the, depends.
2: If you, if you build a whole new yeah. property, yes, it would. Yes,
1: but if mm. you're adding on a, yeah. a, you know, extension or a pool or something like that, it might say that that's okay, but yeah. it might not look out the front and saying, actually, you had that garage on or something like that. Which,
0: that's
2: exactly right. Yes. So that's the exactly building right. certificate, that isn't always for the entire You can get a whole property. building certificate yeah, yeah. for the whole of whole the apart. building. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But occupation certificates have changed their nature, and this is the real crux of the matter, yeah. that the certifier at the end issues an occupation certificate – based on everyone else's certification. So, mm-hmm. certify, certifies, gets certificates. So, it's a collector of papers that says this has all been done. But that was never really the purpose of an occupation certificate. It was is the building suitable for occupation? Yeah. If I was going to use this building, is it safe? Is it is it is it safe to live in? Has everything been done right? Mm. And it's changed its nature. Just by default over the last 20 years. So it just never um, existed before 1998.
0: Right. So okay. That's another, why another you got a building box. certificate. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yes. So if so say
1: something hasn't been approved by the council, you've kind of gone and bought it and then you want to sell it. Is it. Am I right saying you could just sell that though and just, as long as you disclose it, everything's okay?
2: It's due diligence by the, you know, it's the buy beware situation. And mm. again, if you were spending the, mo- the amount of money people spend now, you'd want to make sure you do your proper research and, and educate yourself about what you're actually buying, mm. because you could be buying to trouble. Anything that's an owner builder's, for instance, now does not have any home warranty insurance. They cannot Is that give them at all. At all. So They've changed it's not the even the twelve
0: thousand dollars limit thing. No. Oh. <laughs> I'd want it. If an owner builder built it, I'd want that
2: insurance. And, again, this is the insurance Mm. issue is because if you were were an owner builder and you were selling within seven years, you would go and get home warranty insurance so that there was a protection for the purchaser. Mm. The insurance company have got out of that so you no longer can get a home warranty insurance Mm. or building compensation fund insurance as an owner builder now. So if you're Very buying a get property, get bank finance
1: too. To be honest, yeah. that's true. Yeah.
2: How that's true. how do
0: you get a construction certificate? Because I thought you had to have that before you get your CC.
2: The construct you need it. You need an owner builder's permit. Yep. Or you need home warranty insurance. Oh, either or. One either uh, or. So that's the difference between it all. So there's there's lots there's lots of uh, pitfalls for uh, young players in this in this game and old players. <laughs> so <you're laughs> someone, let's say
1: a client's going out and buying a renovated place. You know, and they, how do they actually check with all the council though? Like what, do they do it themselves? Do they go to a solicitor? Do they go to a So like, who is the experts that they need to employ to make sure everything's okay and they can go out and bid on a property, let's say?
2: They certainly need a conveyor, but you can get what they call an access to government information. So you can go and call a, get called a gipper. To actually look at all the details that council has on that particular job.
0: Now, the problem with that: how long does it take to get a gipper? Well,
2: it does take a little while, yeah, but a lot sometimes of stuff
0: could have sold in the yeah. intervening time. Yeah,
2: a lot of stuff though now is online through DA tracking systems. Mm. There's a lot more digital um, yeah. things, so it does make it easier. But
0: usually, we, usually within the last five years, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, it else go
2: back. Well, in west goes back. Lycard like goes back to 2008. Online. Online. Oh, okay. Online, mm. so again, it's about.
1: But still, t- ten years versus you know, yep. easily could have mm. done a renovation twenty years ago, and that's only on you the paper. Probably do
2: that one by now.
1: Yeah, paper <laughs> in you know in in you know behind yeah. the scenes, you can't actually get access to that unless yep. you do one of these givers. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But it's you're spending a lot of money, so you know what you you so you know you probably research a car, or well, some people do mm. more than you would research oh, people doing that.
0: Research fridges more than they research yep. buying a home, but with with that. In relation, it's interesting because in a hot market when people have FOMO is going crazy, fear of missing out for anyone who doesn't know what FOMO is, then people will overlook all of that due diligence and they go, oh, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. And then in a slow market where buyers are scarce, they will take their time and they will go through with a
2: fine-tooth comb, everything. Mm. But getting your building inspection report, getting a pest report, but if you look at those, there's so many disclaimers Mm. and – it's Four a, pages of disclaimer and about two yeah, pages of report,
1: yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's a good point around building a pest. I mean, really, like, is that enough to do? Is that enough due diligence? You, you know, how, does it actually protect you? Like,
2: Not really, no, because there's so many disclaimers in it. So I think we outsource so much of our responsibilities, mm. you know. Are you going to put a pair of overalls on and crawl underneath the house of a house you're going to buy? or you're going to walk into it at 6 o'clock in the night and go, gee, it looks pretty because someone's dressed it yep. and I don't have to do any work here because it's all painted. You know, paint hides a hundred oh, cents, yes. you know. Mm, especially and,
1: the white chalk one, isn't it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh,
0: you know, it's funny. I actually, a bit of a, a property Dumbo story, I guess, is that um so I went through a property, it was actually in Lilyfield some years back, and I could smell the fresh paint mm. and, and. Upstairs, I could also see it was already starting to bubble in a couple of little spots. I mean, there's some beer, and I went to the wall, and I literally, I just touched it so softly, and my finger went through <laughs> the <gym> prop, Right? Ah, <laughs> uh, bit of damp in this house. Yeah. Bit of water problems, and um. So we didn't buy it for a client I just was interested in it and sometime later this woman that um you know I'd spoken to her and her husband about helping them buy a property but no they decided to do it themselves and then I happened to be chatting to her and she said oh oh we bought we bought that house and mm. I went oh I imagine you've had to do quite a bit of work about the damp the the water and she looked at me and she's just blinking she said how did you know about that um I said because I could see it and smell it when I just wandered through the house. It didn't, Blind Freddy could really, in my view. Um, and she went, oh, we didn't get a building inspection.
2: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and it's a big house. There's a mm. lot of money that has gone into fixing that. Uh, mm. It would have been a massive problem.
2: Yep. Mm. And that was paint. And 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 people don't really understand buildings, I don't think. You know, mm. I, I have a passion about buildings. You guys have a mm. passion about buildings. You walk into it. It's what you smell. It's the the, the moisture content in the air. Mm. There's a whole lot of things. When was it built? How was it built? Who likely to build it? Yeah, You know, all those sorts of things add up to go, is this somewhere where I can put down my roots for the next 20 years?
1: I think that's the thing, though, is most people are thinking about it. Can I live here? Would I like living here? Do mm. I love the look of it? Do mm. I, you know, looking at all the lifestyle benefits of a property, but they're not kind of connecting that to this is what I'm buying. I'm buying a structure yeah. and I've got to, that's actually an investment and I'm going to have to pay to fix it. I'm going to have and to maintain, maintain it, it. Yes. and one day I'm going to have to sell it to someone else. And, mm. you know, I think they're just a disconnection there between what they're buying and they think they're buying this lifestyle, which they are, mm. but at the end of the day their mm. money is buying an asset. It's if the actually house buying doesn't work for mm. them,
0: the lifestyle so is going to be too nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I, mean, I just guess, you know, and that's just the, you know, unless you've, you you might have bought a house and it's been fine and then so you kind of get this overconfidence built up mm. and you just mm. don't really realise that, you know, you could be throwing money on money on money and especially if it's things that get out in apartment buildings and things like that. One day you go to sell that um, and no one wants it because it's all in the strata report and yeah. so you just got to be so yeah. careful and just cut off the emotion sometimes and think actually, no, I am buying a structure.
2: I often, I often feel sorry for builders. They put a lot of effort into the the framework and all these sorts of things. It all gets covered over. they get some nice kitchen for, nice kitchen cabinets, uh, you know the best type of stove or what mm. have you. People walk in and they look at the taps and yeah. the stove and go, "Wow, there's been a lot of money spent here. Mm. But in fact, in the actual structure of the building, as you say, a lot of care and a lot of a lot of hard work because it's a really hard, dirty job, yeah. a lot of stress involved with it, building a property. Goes into that, and the build, and if it's a good builder, they've put their heart and soul they into care. it. They do care. Mm. And then someone looks in and looks at the glossy bits. And yeah. I think that must be disheartening sometimes.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a bit like those lipstick on a pig renovations, you know, yeah. they, they are all about the cosmetics, the paint. Um, rather than the foundations of that house because fundamentally that's what's going to hold it in a good sense over time, not not the pretty taps and the lovely tiles. Um, yeah, they're not worth anything in the whole scheme of things. They, they depreciate, you know, the foundation. Well, everything depreciates. but, you know, that if you've got a good foundation and a really solid home and it's got a good floor plan and everything nicely mm. designed and all that stuff that's sort of hidden, then, yep. um, you know, it's a great asset. <laughs>
1: Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Kerry, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories.
2: Uh, I've got a really, quite a good one actually. It's um, It was a heritage building, got a DA for it. Um, developer developer person came along. Um, it was quite a minor DA that was supposed to happen. So we're talking about a corner block, internal party wall with another set of terraces, so we're talking 1880s, various other bits and pieces, the construction certificate that was issued was not consistent with the DA. So instead of it just they used the same architectural plans but they used different structural plans. When you looked at the structural plans, they were demolishing the whole back of the building and they were putting concrete slabs on three levels of a two-storey building. Mm. The first thing that council found, it was a private certifier, first thing council came about, we had a complaint from the adjoining neighbour that they were toothing out the party wall, so they are taking bricks out. And the neighbour suddenly found that bricks were popping out on his side of the party wall. No permission to load the party wall because the DA was got nothing to do with the party wall, it was completely on the other side. They changed materials, they pulled slabs. I rang the certifier, it was over Christmas, I said, have you been on this site? Do you realise what you've actually done? Oh, I've never been there. So this developer had gone along to do all of this sort of stuff. He was then being sued by the adjoining neighbour. He had a stop work order on him. That site was sterilised virtually for the next two years. Whoa. He put an application in for a building certificate. We refused it because of the issues with the party wall. He, he took that to court. So it would have cost him so much money at the end because... He didn't do his. He didn't follow the plans for the DA. He but, changed the design as he went on. So it was a design so build a purpose, job. God. He purposely purpose tried he to
1: just go, let's get it built, and yep. then you know and plead we'll, ignorance um, yep. and try yep. to get it done.
0: And, and and interestingly enough about using party walls, I I renovated a semi some years ago, and my neighbour wouldn't allow. Uh, wouldn't there was no easement on this this is one thing we look for is there an easement mm. um on the party wall there wasn't and that's quite common not to have an easement yeah. um so therefore you need the neighbour's permission to use the party wall support so if mm. you're gonna go up you know if you can't just build on top of the party wall unless you've got their permission. Yeah I had this nut job neighbor originally if I had two nut job neighbours back before I was a buyer's agent now I don't buy next to nut, nut job neighbours. Um but anyway I had two nut job neighbours um, neither of which would allow me support and that's okay. So I just designed around it. So we actually put our um this supports your... in place. But you know, a lot of people think, Oh, you can't renovate a semi, you can't go up in a semi. Well you can, but you, can. you know, there's but you, just But ways you do need,
2: it. you do need to get your structural engineer to yes. <laughs> to provide an internal portal frame virtually, mm. so a steel frame internal yeah. that doesn't rely on any lateral support or, or um, horizontal support on the party wall. So it costs you more money to do yes. it.
1: Or get your neighbour on board as well.
2: Get your neighbour on you board. try. But yeah. if you've got a very <laughs> narrow terrace and you're mm. suddenly pulling in another hundred either side, yeah. that mm. makes a big difference it sometimes. Does. So keep good with your neighbours is really, really important.
0: And actually on the, the terraces too because quite a lot of them don't have a firewall up in the but, attic. Yep. Still you know, all these years of, you know, mm. fire yep. protection all the rest of it, but you've got a roll of Victorian terraces that all the attic space is just one big space and people, mm. if they want, they can go through each other's manholes yep. and drop yep. into other people's um, lucky, houses. Luckily we have
2: lightweight construction these days so that as long as you get permission you can actually put Put lightweight construction to provide fire fire rating between. Mm. It's good for your noise rating as well, and mm. it's really good for security.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, obviously, if someone's going to get a DA on, on an individual terrace like that, that will be part of the conditions, I would imagine, that they have it's, to. It's put usually
2: that in. part of the actual DA mm. so that you get party wall consent. And it's really important because you don't want to leave that to the last moment mm. and then suddenly find you've got to change your whole structural design yeah. or you've got to change all your architectural design because the, the neighbour has said, I don't want you to build off the party wall. Yeah, It's
1: funny. A client was building a property in Roselle uh, maybe 18 months ago now uh, and I caught up and he was, I was having coffee with him in the city and he's got a call from the builder and the builder's accidentally, uh, the kind of knocking down the wall, actually knocked down the neighbor's wall because the, the kind of the excavator kind of turned around and hit the wall. And so, um, yeah, tight it, space. <laughs> he's got this call and he's like, I've got to go. I've got to go to the site in Roselle. Um, you know, the builder's taken out the neighbour's wall, so I think he was on he was on side with the neighbour. And then after that, it's it just yep. um, yeah. It's, it's amazing all
2: how bad it can go. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the back of a car is really convenient for knocking down something. and I've seen yeah. it happen more than Oops. once, and yeah. often it is done on purpose. Yeah, I'm because sure. as we said before, it's very hard to rebuild something that was there before.
0: They ask for forgiveness, not approval. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> right. I
2: mean,
1: trees are a prime example of that, right? You know, it's like you know, people can cut down trees and then they you know. Oh, sorry, I wasn't meant to do that. Mm. But do you see that a lot? That um, you know, people can kind of become a little bit trigger happy with the trees.
2: I think one of the one of the good things about the inner west is that everyone's got an eye on what everyone else is doing. So oh, often, yes. <laughs> if you've got someone sitting up a tree, that you're thinking, "Hang on a minute!" And they've often been notified about something happening. So. <laughs> you know, there is there is that sort of neighbourhood <laughs> neighbourhood watch, <laughs> yes. civic eye on everything else that's mm. going. Eastern but, suburbs is exactly the same. It's really difficult though, because once it is gone, it is gone. Mm. Um, there's a couple of trees that are on a particular street outside a couple of residential flats that the, where the guy's been trying to get rid of them for years. So he decided to poison them, but the council sort of been a little bit um, smart and just left the. Dead trees outside there as a as a thing that said these trees have been vandalised. It happens a lot to street trees. Yeah. yeah, people have a thing about trees.
0: It's all very very sobering stuff. But the due diligence, as you said, is is really important. So educate you.
2: yourself. You do your due diligence. Don't outsource everything. Make your own own decisions. Because at the end of the day, it's your responsibility. You're paying the money and you've got to live in the place. That's exactly yeah. right. Or it's really it's, important. It's your a, home.
0: Yeah, or if it's an, if it's an investment, yeah. it's the buck stops with you. You know, yeah. as we know that all these these owners in mascot towers, the buck is stopping with them.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's really good advice. I mean, you buy once and get it right and it's job done for life, right? Like it's just if you buy it wrong, it's all problems. Mm. Just continue, continue, continue. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is...
0: Oh, we're going to pick up on on part of the conversation with Kerry where we talked about getting a building and pest inspection. Now, as Kerry did say... um, you know they're not that reliable because a lot of them just basically twelve pages of disclaimer and two pages of actual inspection notes. However, you wouldn't want to buy a property without getting one. Well you certainly wouldn't want to buy a house, and I don't think really you want to buy a townhouse. um and some apartments even it's worthwhile getting a building and pest inspection. So how do you find a good inspector and what or how should you go about it? Well, I think for starters, once again, like, so many industries, there is a fairly low barrier to entry for building pest inspectors. So therefore, you can have people that are doing these inspections that really have never built a property themselves, or they're actually not that experienced. So you want to make sure that whoever you're getting to do it has been around the traps for a long time and can actually advise you on the type of building as well. Because Kerry also mentioned that different buildings of different ages uh, have, you know, inherent or, or I guess, typical problems. So Victorian terraces typically have damp problems. So therefore the question to ask a building inspector is always, how does this compare with others of a similar age? Because if you compare that with, say, a you know, a, I don't know, a 1960s house, for instance, she might not have damp problems in a 1960s house. And so you can't compare a 1960s house with an 1860s house. So it's not fair to do that. So asking how does it compare with properties of a similar age is really relevant. Um, Also... What we always do when we buy a property for a client or even for ourselves is that we would go and meet the building inspector towards the end of the inspection and get them to take us on a walk through the house to point out the areas of concern. Now there are deal breakers in a building inspection and there are also normal stuff that you're gonna to have to deal with when you own a home, right? So Homes have maintenance requirements. Uh, roofs don't last forever. You know, Paint windows need to be repainted. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done in terms of maintaining a home. So having that building inspector go through and, and point out those things that you need to be aware of as an owner of that property is really valuable because ongoing... You are going to need to be aware of that to keep an eye on it and to actually spend money as time goes on. But also to point out what needs to be done probably as as a matter of urgency. So what do you need to tackle first when you move into that property? And then you've got the next sort of layer of problems, which are deal breakers, you know, real significant structural defects or problems or things that you can't fix. And in some cases, like I've come across properties, for instance, where it was built too close to a cliff. And there's not enough gap for the water to get away and you will always have problems because of the way the building was built in the first place. Now, you wouldn't buy that property. You can't fix it without demolishing it. So why would you buy it? Those sorts of things are really important to understand and get the distinction between those deal-breaker defects versus things that are normal part and parcel of owning a house or a home. Please join us for our next episode when we have a very special guest, Alan Kohler. Now, he is one of Australia's most respected finance journalists, and he shares a lot of his wisdom with us. We talk about what has happened to the property market as a result of monetary policy and what could be happening in the next, say, six to 12 months as a result of monetary policy. Very interesting chat with Alan. He's got some great insights for us, so please join us.
1: Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordie Fletcher.
1: Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
0: Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.